Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, American novelist James McBride, known for his memoir, The Color of Water, about his immigrant Jewish mother and black American father. McBride's comic treatment of abolitionist John Brown won the National Book Award. For nine years, James McBride was a journalist at high-profile American newspapers, such as the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. Not so surprising for a graduate of Columbia University's School of Journalism in the late 1970s. But then he left all that to devote himself to his first love, music. Before Columbia, he got his undergraduate degree at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music in Ohio. For the next eight years, McBride worked as a jazz musician saxophonist, composer, and producer. At one point, he was leader of a 12-piece jazz R&B band. But at the same time, he started writing a book about his own upbringing, and especially about the life of his mother. Ruth McBride, Jordan, was born Ruchel or Rachel Zilska in Poland in 1921, the daughter of an Orthodox rabbi. Her family emigrated to the United States when she was two and eventually settled in Suffolk, Virginia, where her father became a shopkeeper on the edge of the African-American part of town. McBride's mother secretly got involved with a young black man, a relationship that didn't work out. But when she was 19, she moved to New York City against her family's wishes and soon made a life for herself with an African-American factory worker, preacher, and musician, Dennis McBride. James McBride was their eighth child, born in 1957, after the death of his father. The story goes on, and McBride captured it all, including the distinctive voice of his mother, in a book called The Color of Water, a black man's tribute to his white mother. The title comes from his mother's response when he asked her once what the color of God's spirit was. The color of water, she said. The book was a great success, selling more than two million copies. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for more than two years. James McBride's next book, a novel, was based on a true story about black American GIs in Italy during the Second World War. Miracle at Santa Ana was made into a movie by Spike Lee. Then McBride turned to pre-Civil War America and the slave trade of the 1850s in Song Yet Sung. And it was while he was researching that book that he came up with the idea for his 2013 novel, The Good Lord Bird. It focuses on the controversial abolitionist John Brown, who led a violent crusade against slavery. Henry David Thoreau called him the most American of us all. And the freed slave leader Frederick Douglass said that John Brown's zeal in the cause of my race was far greater than mine. There have been a lot of books about John Brown, both fiction and non, but what makes The Good Lord Bird distinctive is its irreverent treatment of its subject and the ironic voice of its narrator, a young black slave. 
James McBride was the surprise winner of the American National Book Award, beating out such established writers as Thomas Pynchon, George Saunders, and Jhumpa Lahiri. In 2020, Ethan Hawke made the novel into a seven-episode miniseries in which he starred as abolitionist John Brown. It's available in Canada on Apple TV. James McBride's latest novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, was an instant New York Times bestseller and was featured on more best-of-the-year lists in 2023 than any other book. I spoke to James McBride from an NPR studio in Trenton, New Jersey, in 2014. In your new novel, The Good Lord Bird, the language brings your characters alive with its colorful and vernacular style. What appeals to you about that? Well, I grew up, uh, that's the world that I knew as a boy. People spoke like that. Most of you know, my people, my, my mother and my father were raised in America's South, and my stepfather as well, and uh, all my relatives, my godparents, everyone in church, they all talked like that. They talked from, from down South. It was a time when most black people in New York were Southerners. Today's Immigrants, Mexicans and Ecuadorians and so forth, in the 50s and 60s, uh, they were black people. If you wanted something done, you called a black person because they did all those kinds of jobs. And all of them were from the South, and they all talked like that. So I love that language. I love those characters. And you spent your early childhood in, in the Red Hook housing projects in Brooklyn, where you lived before moving to, as you put it, the relative bliss of St. Albans in Queens. How would you describe the Red Hook neighborhood? Well, I still work there. I still work in the very church that my mother and father started. I have a music program. And it's, it's the same now as it was then, except there aren't as many families and as many working families. But it was a place where it was like a village, you know, where everyone knew each other. And people didn't make fun of you. There was a lot of trust and a lot of crime. And oftentimes, you know, the crime was, was very close. I mean, if someone was hurt or robbed or something, you kind of knew who did it or you had an idea and maybe you could get your stuff back, maybe you couldn't in those days. And later on when drugs came, drugs just destroyed America's poor. It just decimated black American life. But I've always loved Red Hook. I've loved it since I was a boy. I used to spend my, a lot of my summers there because my godparents lived there and they would come and take me from Queens out to Red Hook. And I've always felt comfortable there. But it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition of trust and crime because in, in a small community, you would think crime might undermine the trust or I don't, I don't know. How, how um, well, yes and no. I mean, um, you know, if you know such and such cousin's a drug addict, you know, you just to watch out for him because he's probably robbing his own mom too. I mean, poor people are normal people. They're just poor. If your neighbor has a son or a daughter who has a drug problem, you know, you're probably a little suspicious of them if you, you know, if you're missing your car is missing, you know, tires or something. <laughs> and it's no, it's no different in any, uh, in any. Black Americans are no different than anybody else. They just want, they want the same things. But I think crime and trust are elements that are, they they really play themselves out in a real way amongst the poor, whatever their race. And oftentimes you do know the person. I mean. The character from, from The Good Lord Bird is named Onion. There, I used to know a kid named Onion, and he stole my bike, you know. Um, and I had a hard time getting it back until my brother Richie got involved. And, and he, died of, uh, he died of AIDS, so I'm told, and he had some problems. 
But he was actually a nice guy to play basketball with him. I knew him, you know. But that didn't make him stop stealing my bike, you know. I wasn't happy about it. And he was a big kid, so I couldn't do, any, I couldn't do much about it, you know. <laughs> and when you go back now, you feel at home? I feel very much at home. They treat me, I, I'm treated very well in Red Hook. Now, look, I recently had to approach a gang leader about his little brother who's in my music program. And I was respectful. I mean, he wasn't a gang, he was in a gang. And I said, I just want your little brother, and I want you too, but I'll take him. And he was cool with that, you know. I was respectful. I mean, he wants his little brother to do well. You know, he doesn't want his little brother to do what he's doing, which I'm assuming is slinging dope. I find that when you respect people, they generally are okay. I mean, sometimes you just run into a knucklehead who is just truly, there's nothing you can do. But there are people in Red Hook who, um, who know, know all the kids there. And not all of them, and the white people, there's a white woman in Red Hook who runs a community program there who can, knows a lot of those kids. And she's just probably safer in their projects than I am because she knows everybody. There were 12 children in your family, and your stepfather was only home on weekends. What, what was the atmosphere at home like? There was chaos in my house, but my brothers and sisters were, the older ones were responsible for the younger ones, so... You know, it was fun. I mean, the same person who was ordering you around could also, you know, uh, play with you at the same time. My my brother Billy was the king in my house. He'd say, you know, wash the dishes, you and Hunter, it's your turn. And we'd have to do it. You know, we had all this these rules. But then he also was, you know, he was he was very funny. And he would sing and sing songs and teach us songs. He'd play, pretend to be a preacher, and he would play songs at the piano and we were fun. We, I mean, we had a we had a very fun childhood. I mean, we were poor, but we didn't weren't deprived. Oh, it sounds like you were hungry a lot. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. I mean, I wouldn't wish that on on any young person. How, how did your mother manage the household, more or less, on her own? She had a whip that was, you know, she had a belt that was thunder and lightning, and uh, she believed in creativity. And she didn't believe in money, and she didn't like money. So we were free to do a lot of things that other kids probably weren't as free to do in terms of our creative life. You know, reading. We weren't allowed to watch television. Very rarely. I mean, we would sneak and do it when we could, but our television wasn't very good anyway. And we just, you know, she just had specific rules. She had to be in bed at a certain time. I didn't have a clean house. I mean, if my mother ran my house today and raised us today and some... Somebody from a social service agency walked in the house. They would, we'd all be living in foster care. Because <laughs> our house was a mess. I mean, it was awful in terms of its physical, you know, the look of the place. <laughs> the New York Times just did a piece about a poor girl in Brooklyn. And when I saw pictures of her house, I was like, ooh. I called my sister Kathy. I said, damn, look at this, you know. Kind of looks like our house a little bit. I mean, it looked a little worse, really. You know, it looked worse than our house. But, it, you know, I, I was reminded of, you know, football helmets sitting around, people sitting on them, and people dressed in fur coats in July playing tackle football in the living room and socks used as for anything, everything from putting chalk in them and eggs in them and throwing them at somebody or putting them on your feet or wearing somebody else's pants. And it just was chaos. In some ways, I think it might have been easier on the kids that your mother didn't mind chaos because if you have so many kids in the house, if you're like a neatnik, you're going to be in trouble, you know. It was a cacophony of joy, even though we didn't consider it to be joy. We were like, I got to get out of this house, you know. But 
I look back now and I realize that it was a it was a privilege to be in that environment. Your first book was a memoir about your mother and your own childhood called The Color of Water. Why did you want to make that record of her life? The older I got, the more I realized how interesting she was. I didn't realize how unique she was until I became a man. I realized I couldn't figure out who I was until I figured out who she was because I and all my siblings were connected to her. And so when I began to investigate it, I, I thought it might be an interesting book. I didn't know anything about publishing when I first write, started writing The Call of Water. I was working as a musician. I was a saxophone. I was and am, you know, I was playing in saxophone in various bands and you know, traveling by van, going around, playing down in the village on Bleecker Street. I was also teaching English as a second language to Polish refugees in, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. This is, you know, pre-yuppie Brooklyn. You know, this was when Brooklyn was was Brooklyn, you know. <laughs> and um, it, it just uh, it just seemed like an interesting thing to do, to find out who she was. I needed to do it. And in doing so, I, I discovered more about who I was. And I, I also came to the understanding that a lot of this business we waste time with, at least in America, this business of racism and race, and it's just, it's all a bunch of puff and smoke. I mean, it's real if you let it be real, but to me, it's, it's not real. It's just about humanity. But originally your mother was reluctant to talk about her life. Do you know why? Yeah, well, she was, she, she was born and raised as an Orthodox Jew in Virginia. She was born in Poland, came over here as a two-year-old. Uh, and was raised in Suffolk, Virginia. Well, she was raised in a series of synagogues in the northeast section of the country, and then her father finally found a job in Suffolk, Virginia. Uh, and her life was very, very difficult. Her father was an abusive man, abused his children. They were the only Jews, and it was part of a small Jewish community in, in Suffolk, in Virginia, which was at that time was a very anti-Semitic place. She had few friends, and and her only connection really to people were the black customers who came to her father's store because her father's store was in the black section of town. So the day after she graduated from high school in 1940 or 1941, she came to New York and she eventually met my father and married him. Uh, And then they had a bunch of kids. Just to back up for a sec, how did you persuade her to talk? I mean, since when you were growing up, I told her. She, that, well, I told her this book would. I told her the book would make me a million bucks. That moved the mountain a little bit. <laughs> and you were right too. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was right. Well, I'm, yeah, I was right. I mean, yeah, actually, I was right. Yeah, over it, the course of the last thirteen, or yeah, 15, it sold over years. two million copies. So you hope you made. Well, a I mean, it's funny we're having that conversation now. So you know, I'm discussing my papers with my old college, and you know, when you write a best-selling book, people think you're a millionaire. And uh, after I got divorced three years ago, I was cleaned out. Everything I saved up was gone. And it was kind of nice to be back at zero because you don't have anything anything to worry about. I had a lot of debt, though, and I just recently got back to zero. And it's a nice place to be. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that for most of my literary life, after The Color of Water became a success... One of the really weird problems that I had was that people perceived me as being like a millionaire. They expect me to pull up in a Lexus, you know, with, and I pull up in my 12-year-old Toyota pickup truck. I'm not complaining. It's a good problem. But it, I think it was easy when my mother was alive because I could just give her everything she needed. And if anyone else needed anything, I'd just say, well, you know, I have a wife and three kids, and that's it. 
But then she died, you know, in 2010. And then two weeks later, my niece died. And then later that year, my ex-wife, now ex-wife, just decided that she didn't want to be married to me anymore. And then everything kind of just fell apart. And then, you know, all the, the basic parts of my life just kind of collapsed all at once. But I'm lucky because I was raised in the church, and that really helped me. Corny as it sounds, to people who don't believe, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm not one of these fanatics, but God has always helped me, and I just, yeah, I made it, you know. It's all right. You, you, you learn what's important. If you didn't know, then you're reminded of it. And what was it for you at that time? The only thing that really mattered to me was were my kids, you know, and having access to them. And My two oldest kids live with me, my youngest. I still share joint custody with my ex-wife. That's all I care about. I was thinking just as I got out the car, you know, when I was coming here, um, that the most important thing to me right now is this program that I run in Red Hook with these 10, 12 kids who come to my music program. My mother used to say she never got tired of watching the miracle of children grow up. And some of these kids I've known for you know, a few years, and to watch them evolve from age five to seven to 10, and to see the changes, and to see how the world sort of folds itself into their consciousness, and they start to see the wall spring up. And my job is to stand by that wall and say, this is, there's no wall here. That gets me out of bed in the morning. When you see a kid who says, I'll pick up that drumstick and just try that thing one more time. I can't tell you how good that feels. That's really God at work for me. Your mother converted from Judaism to Christianity, and 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 your parents founded a Baptist church, as you as you were saying. Your mother embraced Christianity as a Baptist wholeheartedly. How did her religious beliefs direct her life? She was one of these people who believed that if you did, you know, if you accept Jesus. It's all good, you know, everything, all your sins, your past are erased and so forth. She had tremendous guilt about running away from home and leaving her mother. Her mother was a, a devout Jewish woman and a very, very fine person and, and an abused wife. And I think when mommy left home, she felt tremendous guilt about leaving her mother and couldn't get through that. And only when she accepted Jesus did she feel that God had forgiven her sins because shortly after she left home, her mother died. And because she had absolved herself of the Jewish faith, she wasn't allowed to see her mother and she wasn't allowed to mourn her and so forth. Family because she because she left home and moved to New York and, and married a, a non-Jew, her family had, had cut her off. Yeah, well, that's part of the Jewish faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's just how things were and to some degree are. But there, it left no room for her to live as a Jew. And you have to remember her upbringing as a young Jewish girl was not the typical upbringing for a Jewish person. I mean, her father was Jewish, but he wasn't the kind of Jew you'd say, I'm proud he's a Jew. He was kind of, he was screwed up. So she didn't have a positive experience with Judaism because she, she was always attached to, to the behavior of her father. Um, How did you deal with that when you found out that she had been sexually abused by her father? Well, I didn't like it, you know. But I, I basically forgive I mean, she forgave him for the past, and so I have no no great you know axe to grind against the guy. These things happen, and the best thing you can do is just hold him up to the light and then put him away and forget all about him. My mommy, my mother had a real good gift for like just letting the past go. 
And I think that's what Christianity did for her. I think that's what accepting Jesus did for her. Now, I'm not one of these people who say, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going straight to hell, and that's it. <laughs> but um, Did she think that? Well, not really. But that's that was part of her groove from that. Her people, you know, that, that generation of Christians really was pretty strong about that. And there's still bunch, lots of people who, who feel that. If you don't accept Jesus, you're going straight to hell. And Mixed marriages weren't common in the 1940s. What risks were your parents taking? They they had a lot of risks. They couldn't travel to the South. and You know, they, they were chased around New York sometimes. Uh, you know, it was illegal to marry across racial lines in the 40s. My father was the one who really took the greatest risk, but uh, you know he had, he had because, a lot of foresight. Because uh, you know, because he would get killed, he couldn't take his wife to the south. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't do the, the things that uh, any other married couple could do. So it was not, you know, it was it was frowned upon. I, I think it was more accepted in Black America than white. In fact, I know it was. When you're poor, you have so little control of what goes on, whatever your color. Your father died before you were born, and you, you were the eighth child. Your mother remarried, went on to have four more children with your stepfather. And he died when you were 14. What was he like? Well, he was a good guy, you know. I loved him. He was a quiet man, you know. He was a very hardworking man. He didn't take any nonsense. He'd say, pick up those shoes, you know. Three kids would bend over. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor. He didn't let stuff get him down. He didn't want to talk about racism or anything like that. He didn't, he didn't believe in that. You know, he just believed in doing well. Get good grades. Don't worry about what people say. He got along well with everybody. He was very well respected on his job. And he was firm. And he had some brothers who I loved, his brothers. They were very, very funny. And they were firm men. I mean, he's, my stepfather was the kind of guy you didn't, you didn't want to get him mad or his brothers mad because they would, they would respond. I mean, they didn't do it often. But... Nobody messed with them too much. They weren't the kind of people who you just. It wasn't like they went around saying, "I'm going to beat you up." You know, they were just calm, cool people. They understood what was important. Whenever you asked your mother as a child about her skin color, she'd reply that she was light skinned, and that would end the conversation. And given how direct she was about some things, why why do you think her race was so difficult for her to talk about? She said it because she just wanted us to have a decent life, and she knew that it was easier for us if she was just considered a light-skinned black person. Black people come in all different shades and colors. And so it was acceptable, even though at a certain point I knew it was not really true. James McBride, tell me about the title of your memoir, The Color of Water. Where does that come from? Uh, when I was a little boy, I used to ask my mother what color is God, and she'd say God is the color of water. How did you understand that as a kid? What did it mean? <laughs> it just meant she was just dodging my questions. It really didn't mean anything. I, it meant something later when my brother Richie came to Sunday school and insisted that they should take the pictures of Jesus off the walls because Jesus was Jesus white. You know, He got into this thing with the ministers, God white. And the minister said, well, no, God is all colors. And Richie just started in about, well, he's all colors. Why is Jesus you know, white on the walls? And why, that, why is that picture of Jesus white there? <laughs> that flustered him bad. I mean, I suppose it, 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 in answer to your question, it became a little more relevant later on. 
about her saying God is the color of water. I didn't understand a lot of the lessons that she taught me at the time because I think she didn't really think she was teaching me. I think she just did what she thought was best. She never felt that she was a wise person or particularly skilled at, at anything. She just guided. She, was, she went along by instinct. She did believe that it really didn't matter what color you are. And her life was evidence. I mean, she had seen that as a child. She had seen the kind of racism that existed in the South. She had seen, she experienced the kind of deep anti-Semitism that existed in the South, which was, in those days, was very, very strong. I can recall researching the book and talking to the old Jews in Suffolk. And there were places where Jews couldn't live. And no dogs, no Negroes, and they didn't use that word, and no Jews. And there were signs that would just proclaim that certain sections of town that Jews couldn't buy homes and so forth. So she understood what it's like to be ostracized for what you are. And she didn't want her kids to have that, that prejudice. You discovered music and literature in high school. When did you start playing the saxophone? Um, I started when I was um, maybe in the sixth grade. I started on clarinet. I started on piano first in maybe the fifth grade. And then I changed over to clarinet when I was in the sixth grade, and then played clarinet and flute and saxophone going to seventh and eighth grade. Then when I got to high school, I switched over to bass. And, so I didn't really own any instruments. You know, We only owned a piano, so I didn't really get serious about the saxophone until I was in last year of high school. I played the trombone and the marching band. I played everything. I played whatever I could. And what, whatever, you, back, whatever you could borrow? or, or Yeah, whatever I could borrow, whatever I could get my hands on. We had a clarinet. And we had a piano. So those are the things I played. And I played in a lot of bands in high school. In those days, you know, people played in bands the way they do rap music now. So I played in a lot of different bands. And when I tried out for marching band, I had never even played trombone. But, you know, he said I already had enough saxophone players, so I just pretended I could play trombone. And then he tried me out. <laughs> he said, well, play a B-flat. And uh, B-flat's in first position. I stuck the slide out as far as it could go and blew a note and he said well you know you kind of out of practice so I, he put me in the beginner's band but I I was in the marching band within like a month I, I used to practice I was I love music and when, when you went off to Oberlin College in Ohio to study music was it hard to leave your home and, and, and especially your mother behind I wanted to get away from home you know when I got to college well yes it, the answer is yes but I was like any high school kid. I wanted to get out of the house, and I didn't care what happened at home. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be free. And I also had had a rocky time after my stepfather passed, so I had kind of come full circle. I was a little more cognizant of my mother at that age than, than your normal high school kid, probably. And it was hard to leave her when I first left for Oakland because she didn't have any money. She was struggling, and I remember we had to go get a turkey for Thanksgiving, and we had to take the bus and she had moved to Wilmington, Delaware. She lived there for a year, and we were on the bus, and the turkey came out the bag and rolled all the way to the front of the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and Mommy was just, oh, she just felt so bad about that. So uh, I just laughed, and we, we got the turkey and took that sucker home and cooked it. And, uh, yeah, I felt bad about that. And she never saw Oberlin until I graduated. She could never visit, you know. She would just put me on the bus with a duffel bag and, and it was hard when I left, you know. I looked out the window on the bus and saw her crying. I remember that. I remember that for the rest of my life. You know, that was very difficult for me because I, I saw then that, because my mother never cried in front of us, ever. 
Only when she was just like at funerals, like when my stepfather died, and later when my brother Billy died, you know, she just 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 collapsed. But just she was strong, you know. So seeing her that that was hard. And then I went to school and and promptly forgot about it as much as I could and went ahead and started living my life and then ended up circling back to her. And what made you go to Columbia School of Journalism right out of Oberlin? Well, I got, you know, socially active at Oberlin. Um, I mean, I wasn't super socially active, but when I was at Oberlin, uh, Nelson Mandela was, um, the anti-apartheid movement had begun. And as a senior at Oberlin, the anti-apartheid movement had, had struck against the school, and I was a cafeteria worker, and we were supposed to strike, and I did. And the campus was split along racial lines in the, in the sense that the black student organization didn't want to do it because white students had come up with the idea. And then so I just said, what the hell with you guys? And I went with the white students and participated. And I just became very socially active. And I became aware of the fact that, I became painfully aware of the fact that a lot of this is about money and people who don't have it. And so I decided I wanted to change the world. And so I applied to Columbia and got in. You know, I wasn't a writing student. I didn't work for the student newspaper or anything like that. I just wrote an essay for Columbia University. And I applied and I got in. I wasn't for shock, but I, you know, I, I somehow made it through the program. I wasn't one of the top students at Columbia when I was there. Um, you know, it's a very rigorous program. Mm-hmm. But you got, you graduated, you got good jobs with newspapers. Did you feel that you could change the world? I think being a journalist is something you should do for about 10 years. And then you should step away from it and do something else. Because the kind of cynicism that, will, that you allow to crawl into your system as a journalist will ruin your creative life and hurt you. I felt when I was a journalist, I was like watching the world and not participating. I learned more about the world playing the blues and playing weddings for nine years than I ever learned when I was a journalist. When I was a journalist, I'd get on the, in the car or on the buses and go to this box, and then they'd say, do a story about you know the McDonald's gospel trombone choir that's here in Washington, D.C., and I'd trop out and I'd do a story and I'd come back and write it, and I'd learn nothing. And I just felt like I was watching the world from the outside. And um, I quit it. I just quit it. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh cry and feel a little bit less alone asking for it subscribe now james mcbride i'd like to look at your new novel the good lord bird when did you first learn about the 19th century abolitionist john brown um i was fooling around in fredericksburg maryland writing my previous researching my previous book previous novel which was about harriet tubman and I just came across a reference in a, in a diary to John Brown's attack on Harper's Ferry. And so I just drove down there just to take a look around. And I was fascinated with what I found. Well, what, what, before you even went there, what stories had you heard about him when you were growing up? Or how was he taught in school? <clears throat> what, what did you bring to it? Well, they never, they never talked about John Brown when I was coming up. <laughs> the only mention of John Brown I ever recall was when the Black Panther somehow, I think the word provisional government was the 
the, the catchphrase I heard one of my older brothers use. And that was like, you know, you, and I, you weren't even supposed to say that word because it could get you into so much trouble. Um, but he was never taught about in schools. But we, you know, we did learn uh, the John Brown song, you know, my eyes have seen the glory of the come. But it, <clears throat> the the true lyric is, John Brown's body lies molded in the grave. Da, 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 da. And so um, that's all I knew about him. But I, the name was faintly familiar in my memory. And I knew he was important, but I really didn't know what he'd done until I investigated it as a, you know, as a writer. I just couldn't believe what a great story it was. And then, you know, the fact that he had attacked Harper's Ferry with 19 others to end slavery. He was a white guy who felt it was wrong. He was a Christian. He was a devout Christian. I just thought it was a great story. So I wanted to write a book that I would read and that would thrust him into the public consciousness in a way that maybe Jesse James is seen. Now, how he did it and his means of it, I don't necessarily agree with, but he certainly merits more attention. And that really was one of the reasons I wrote the book. Tell me a bit about the facts of his life, that you, the sort of starting point. Well, John Brown was born in Torrington, Connecticut. He was an abolitionist. He grew up and he had 12 kids and he had 22 altogether. He had 12 that lived, that survived. And his oldest sons went out to Kansas Territory to uh, to stake a claim, which in the, in, when America was being formed, as America began to take over the western states, the western part of this this part of the continent, the issue of slavery had not been resolved out there. And so people from Missouri, from the Missouri Territory, wanted slavery to continue. People from Kansas Territory, who came from New York and, and Philadelphia and Boston and so forth, were, were anti-slavery. And a war broke out. And so John Brown's son sent him a letter asking him to send him, them some guns. And he did better than that. He just brought the guns himself. And then he just jumped into the war in Kansas. At the end of that, he ended up coming east and uh, attacking Harpers Ferry in an attempt to end slavery. Harpers Ferry was America's biggest arsenal at the time. They had 100,000 guns that were being made there. He decided to attack it and try to take it over and thinking that the blacks would swarm to him when they saw the revolution was happening. And given that John Brown was a, a failure at business and at most everything else he tried, he he was a, a remarkable fighter and strategist. I mean, just the, before getting to Harper's Ferry, just I mean, some of it, of course, is due to his his own faith and his confidence. But how did he learn military tactics? Well, he studied. You know, he studied uh, Napoleon and he studied um, Toussaint Louverture and uh, the, the Haitian Revolutionary, the, the Haitian Revolutionary, and Garibaldi. He was a study. He even went to Europe to to look at some of the uh, to to walk the grounds of where the uh, the Romans and the um, he studied military history. Uh, he was a devout reader of the Bible and a deep reader of military tactical works. He even at one point tried to to hire a uh, a Brit who had fought in Italy, and he tried to hire this guy. He did hire the guy, and then he ended up. It didn't work out because I guess he couldn't take orders from anyone. But this guy was supposedly a military tactician. He studied the Harpers Ferry business a long time before he actually attacked it. And the fact is, he actually did succeed. He took over America's biggest arsenal with only 19 men. And he held it for a day and a half, and he could have gotten away. But he was sitting there waiting for the black folks to show up. And they just never came. But eventually, because he was stuck so long waiting for black people to show up, and they never showed up. Eventually, the military showed up in greater and greater numbers, and he fought them off until he finally couldn't fight them off any longer, and then, and then they got him. 
Many of the slaves in, in, in your novel, The Good Lord Bird, feel ambivalent about the freedom that John Brown is fighting for. I mean, he has trouble, as you're saying, rousing them to action. Why? Is it what Franz Fanon called the colonized mind, that absorbing the master's perception of yourself and makes it hard to act against? Maybe. Maybe. I don't think it's all that, though. I think people who don't have a voice are easily misunderstood by people who do have a voice. They knew that if they were to get caught, the ones who would suffer the most would be them. And that even though whites would exact a you know, horrible punishment on John Brown, triple that for, that for what would happen to the black folks. So they were, they were frightened of the consequences. The other thing is that the complex web of relationships that exist between blacks and whites now existed then as well. Even though blacks were slaves, many blacks didn't refer to them as slaves. They saw themselves as slaves. They referred themselves as living in bondage. And oftentimes, and while every black person that with sense woke up and went to sleep dreaming of freedom, they often loved their their families and their masters because they were family. Now I'm not, you know, I'm not assuming and presuming that black people wanted to be slaves, but they. They had relationships that lasted at times for generations. So to pick up a gun and just say to your master, I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to leave you now, it was difficult. You know, it was not easy. And leave for what? Canada was a long way away. And John Brown was a man who had no money. And some people are just not meant to be warriors. Some people are just, they just it's not in their nature. It's complicated business, this whole business of war and race. An unshakable faith in God was one of the things that kept John Brown going against the odds. Can you talk about his religious zeal? Well, that part I'm pretty familiar with, you know. He was very, very religious. He was a Calvinist, and Calvinists have this kind of, I don't know, this whole business of predestination is part of their makeup. Everything is destined to be, destined to happen. And that was part of his, his makeup. He believed that God had spoken to him and said, you must free the slaves. So he did what he, God had told him to do. Now, we, you and I both know that's pretty dangerous business. I mean, you know, you hear that these days, and at least in the United States, people get real nervous. We know what religious zealotry can do. In that regard, he was, a, he was over the top. Doubt didn't seem to be part of his makeup. Do, do you think he had any doubts about what he was doing? (laughs) Well, you know, he was an old man for that time. He was 59 by the time it was all over. No, he didn't seem to have a lot of doubt. And I suppose that's one reason why I admire him so much, uh, because he was so clear in his vision of what humanity is supposed to be. And uh, particularly the Southern planters who had to dehumanize African-Americans in order to continue slavery. So that the fact that John Brown said that African-Americans are people and I'm going to free them. And people thought he was crazy. He was portrayed as a crazy person for many years by many historians. People feared John Brown, even the idea of John Brown. He he became a legend. And his war against slavery was a violent one. He didn't stint at killing his enemies. How did he square that with his religious beliefs? Well, good question. Um, But John Brown didn't kill people for nothing. Oftentimes, when he court pro-slavers, he would lecture at them, and you know, and they just say, "Look, you just kill me or just let me go. I can't stand it." I mean, he he wasn't a ruthless person who attacked defenseless people. 
He wasn't like a, a terrorist who walked into a who drove planes into, you know, into building and killed innocent civilians. He fought against people who shot at him and in some cases killed members of his family. His own son was killed. He lost three three sons in his fight against slavery and eventually lost his own life as well. The whole business of race had really just has has and continues to push this country and places all over the world in just the most macabre directions. But it was a war. And people were shooting back. That's what it was. I mean, how how did he, you know, absolve himself of the blood on his hands? That that was between him and his maker. You know, he felt the Bible gave him justification to do those things. I'm not too sure about that, but that that was his view. Did your view of John Brown change in any way by the time you'd finished writing The Good Lord Bird? I liked him more. I thought I understood him better. And I was also convinced that if I had lived during that time, I wouldn't have run with him either. He was just too strong, too much of a, a revolutionary, too fearless. I, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I felt the same way when I read it, <laughs> that uh, I, I would be like your character, Henry, who's uh, loyal but ducking for cover. <laughs> yeah, I would, I, would, I would just say, you know, I'd just it'd be time to go get a tuna fish sandwich. Every time they'd ride out to attack, I'd... I'd have to go boil an egg or something. I, you know, I just wouldn't be able to do it. The men who ran with John Brown were unconsciously brave. And that's something I still think about now. He had 15 white men and four black men who rode with him. And his daughter supported them as well. And the 19 men who ran with him were, some of them had children. Like they have relatives who are floating around with their genes, you know, their DNA. I admire them so much because they knew they were going to, to die. And they knew no one would, would thank them, or few would thank them for what they've done. Why do you say unconsciously brave, as opposed to brave, brave? Well, they were fighting for a group of people that they saw were suffering, but they knew could not help them. And they were so moved by it that they just did it without thinking it through. He told them that they were attacking Harpers Ferry, and he convinced them that they could get away. But... They had to know that if blacks didn't come in huge numbers, that they would die, and they would probably die horribly. And that really happened for them. Some of the ways some of the, one of the black guys died was terrible. They gutted him, they cut his ears and his privates off, they fed him the pigs. I mean, some of them were just killed horribly. It's horrible what happened to them. Because the mob got drunk. They all got drunk. I mean, they, they'd been, they had him trapped in there for a day and a half. John Brown and his men were shooting back, and then they just... The saloons were doing brisk business, and when those guys got drunk, they started packing their guns with nails and everything else. They and they were, and then they brought in General Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart, and they finally finished the whole business. But by the time they got there, an enormous amount of blood had been shed on both sides. At, at one point, a character in The Good Lord Bird says that the whole conflict was actually about land and money. How, how accurate is that? Hmm, pretty accurate. You know, to some degree, it's still about land and money. I'd say that's about right. We have n enormous ways of hurting each other when it comes to land and money. And we still do it. Is, is race a mask for greed or something? Is it, is it easier to argue that that's the issue in some way? No, race is just the, you know, what people put on use as a baseball bat when they want to beat you off the real truth which is the, the real truth is that, you know, a small amount of people have a lot of money. 
And they like it when the rest of us just go at each other and they use races, just a kind of wedge to toss out. It's just the, the red meat that they toss to the starving dog because it's not about race. When black people get in power, they do the same thing that white folks do. They act the same way. And I'm sure it's that case with, with every group. There are not that many Nelson Mandela's in the world. There are not that many George Washington's around. You know, race is just something that is used to divide us. I'm convinced of that. I've seen that my whole life. I saw that from the time I was a child until now. And I suppose being raised by a white mother who said, you know, there's no difference between folks really opened my eyes to it, even as a young boy when I didn't see it. And, and now I see it clearly. I don't get caught up in it too much, you know. It's really about money and power. Slavery was an economic institution. You know, the South depended on slavery to do well, to live, to survive. And so they just simply dehumanized their slaves and just made them cogs in the machine. It became personal only because it, it's just so easy to use race as an excuse to absolve yourself of the responsibility of caring for your fellow human being. James McBride, the historical figure of Frederick Douglass makes an appearance in, in The Good Lord Bird. Uh, one character says he was like the colored president. Can you tell me a bit about him? Oh, yeah. Well, Frederick Douglass was like a huge, he was a huge uh, figure during slavery. Former slave, becomes a spokesman for the, you know, for the freedom movement. He was friends with John Brown. And in this book, I, you know, I take the liberty of poking fun at him. Frederick Douglass, in real life, had a black wife and a white mistress. And at one point, they lived together in the same house. That's pretty funny to me. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. I, I don't, we, we can't do that in Brooklyn. I, maybe they can do that in other parts of the world, but that doesn't wash, you know, uh, here. So I had fun with that. And in real life, he was a friend of John Brown. And John Brown did write some of his revolutionary bylaws at Frederick Douglass's house and and used Frederick Douglass's house to plan his raid on Harpers Ferry. But at the last minute when he was going to attack Harpers Ferry, John Brown went to Frederick Douglass and said, come with me, and, and Douglass refused. Douglass said it, it was a suicide mission, and he was right. And John Brown was bitterly disappointed about that because he felt if, if Douglass had come with him that more blacks would have come. I've thought about that, and I'm not sure. Yeah, I was just going to ask really, you, what do you think? It, 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 on, intuitively, it seems like had Douglas lent his support, more blacks would have come. But would that just have meant more blacks would have been slaughtered? I mean, do you have, what, what, what do you think about that? I don't think blacks would have believed that Frederick Douglass was there. But had he come, more blacks would have come, probably. But if I were living at the time, I wouldn't have come, whether Frederick Douglass was there or not. He could have had Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ was there, I might have showed up. He had definitive proof. <laughs> but I'm not sure that how many more blacks would have come. Some would have come. The problem was that the communication that existed during that time was, was not appropriate to the kind of revolution that John Brown wanted to start. That kind of business spread so much panic in white America that no black person who was sensible would even get involved in it. You have to remember, in the 40s and 50s, if you walked in America's South and looked at a white woman sideways, you could get yourself hung. So you can imagine what it was like during slavery if you just even like hinted at speaking out. If you even sang a song that looked like, if you even pretended you wanted to learn how to read, you could be in trouble if you had the wrong master. The fact that he thought blacks might want to join him, he was in, in part dreaming. 
which speaks to the blacks who did, the four that did, one of whom, by the way, was a graduate of my alma mater, Oberlin College, the only college student with John Brown was a, a black college student from Oberlin. John Brown's attempt to take the armory at Harper's Ferry failed, and he was hanged not long afterwards. But in the weeks between his arrest and his death, he continued to fight his abolitionist cause, writing letters, trying to raise support, even from jail. How critical was his work, do you think, in, in leading to the Civil War? Well, I think he did more in the six weeks before he, he died with that pen than he ever did with a gun or a broadsword. His attack panicked America. There were reports in near, nearby Charlestown, which is right not, not far from Harper's Ferry, of, of uh, slave owners reporting about their animals being poisoned, their horses being loose from, from stalls, all kinds of mysterious things happening on, on these plantations because the word of his uh, hanging was drawing closer and closer and black slaves were becoming more and more restless. And there were numerous reprisals against innocent blacks who did nothing other than just walk up and down the road. America was in a state of utter shock. I think there were three uprisings about slavery that really panicked America. Denmark Vesey, Nat Turner's Rebellion, and John Brown. And John Brown was the most effective in terms of uprising because it you know, we're approaching the Industrial Revolution. We had railroads. We had, you know, telegraph. Things were, America was really evolving. Abraham Lincoln was about to become president. The, the whole slave question, the Fugitive Slave Act had been introduced in 1850, and it was very, very controversial. It drew a lot of northern white abolitionists into the slavery, anti-slavery movement because southerners would come up to claim, or slave catchers would come to New York or Pennsylvania to, to grab a slave and would be met by mobs of anti-slavery crusaders. So the country was primed for war anyway. And John Brown really galvanized the anti-slavery movement because he did something that they were afraid to do. He actually picked up a weapon and, and fought and sacrificed his, basically his life and, his, and that of his family as well to the anti-slavery cause. You say that one of your favorite books on slavery is a nonfiction book by Leon Litvak called Been in the Storm So Long, The Aftermath of Slavery. Why is that your favorite? Because Litvak understands the complex web of relationships that exist between blacks and whites. I think if you don't understand that, you should not be writing about history in America. You can't do it unless you understand that we are inextricably linked and that slavery was made slaves of white people as much as it did of black people. Now, you know, if a, a slave during that time would say, well, you just go to hell for saying that. <laughs> but it's true, because we're bound up in these relationships that were caustic and toxic and caused pain and suffering for everyone, for everyone who had, you know, had sensibility, true sensibility. And Litwack writes about slavery from that perspective. And he also sees slavery from the African-American side, which, which, you know, he just goes beyond the stereotypes. I mean, slaves talk. Some were shy, some could read, some were backstabbers, some would trade their cousin in for a can of peaches, other would, others were noble. I mean, he understood the humanity of all people, slave owners and slaves. And that's why, that's why he's a great historian. I love his work. I mean, there's a novel in every page of his work. You won the National Book Award for The Good Lord Bird. 
Why was this prize so significant for you? I mean, you've written a couple of novels that aren't your own personal story, not memoir, including one about the Second World War, about black GIs in Italy. You wrote another book, also pre-Civil War, another work of fiction. That's true, but I was never considered a really serious fiction writer. I mean, at least in my, as far as I can tell, I was never, you know, seen. I've never won any kind of award. <laughs> I mean, the first award I won was like the big one, you know. I've never won anything. I was so surprised when I won that award. I'm sure you, you heard. I, I just, I walked up there with my napkin in my hand. I didn't, you know, I've never won anything because I, I felt I was never perceived as a serious writer. And I, it was okay because I always made a living at it. I'm, I'm very grateful about that. I cannot tell you. And see, this is the thing. When you grow up poor of any race, when you grow up poor and you sell your story in a memoir, it's sort of like, well, you know, that's why people read it because he, he had such a horrible life, blah, blah, blah. You know, it says nothing. It doesn't really speak to your ability to craft story and your ability to, to tug it out, to, to pug it out with the best writers around. And at some point, I realized I had a gift for this, and that I was as good as anybody else doing it out here. And that feels, for me personally, or professionally, is very satisfying. It's great to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. James McBride in Trenton, New Jersey in 2014. The Good Lord Bird and his latest novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, are published by Riverhead Books. Writers and Company was produced this week by Mary Stinson, with thanks to Katie Swales and Sarah Cooper. The senior producer is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, one of England's most engaged and provocative writers, Martin Amos. His 2014 novel, The Zone of Interest, focused on the Holocaust from a different angle. Its recent screen adaptation is nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best International Feature. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.